from across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for the opportunity for me to be able to come here this evening and talk to you about Defence's Aeromed evacuation capability. It's not something that gets publicised particularly well, um, but um, so hopefully um, this is a nice opportunity for us to be able to present what we do, how we do it, and of course if you have any questions during um, the presentation then you're more than welcome to fire away and ask. Um, but uh, the role of uh, aeromedical evacuation is to deliver the highest standards of uh, in-flight care to effect expedient and safe transfer of patients by air um, from locations worldwide. So to support the theme of mental health in aviation, I'm a mental health nurse by background, so I'll be talking about the aeromedical evacuation capability from a mental health perspective. But to give you an understanding of, of how aeromed is within defence, um, all our aeromed capability is held at Tactical Medical Wing at Bryce Norton. Just make sure the clicker works here. There we go. Um, it's all held at Tactical Medical Wing at Bryce Norton. Um, Tactical Medical Wing is the hub. Um, it's where all air delivery of medical um, and aviation uh, care is provided uh, from an aeromedical point of view. Um, Aeromed is divided into two wings, um, the tactical side and the strategic side. So the tactical uh, element of uh, aeromedical evacuation is delivered in theatre of operations. So if you imagine that somebody becomes injured um, out on the ground, um, it will be the role of the medical emergency response teams using rotary uh, uh, aircraft to collect that patient, provide pre-hospital care and uh, deliver them to a uh, care facility that has the provision and the ability in country. In addition to that, we have the uh, DARTs as well, which is the Deployable Air Medical Response Teams, and they uh, live at Tactical Medical Wing at Bryce Norton, <coughs> but it is their primary role to be on high readiness to respond to any humanitarian crisis, any natural disasters, or indeed if uh, worldwide uh, conflict is, is occurring um, over the globe. So it's their role to be able to deliver an aeromed capability in a very forward role. Whereas on my side of the aisle, uh, it's strategic aeromed. So all our capabilities are uh, from the UK. Um, they are designed to go to a location um, across the world, um, bring the patient back to the UK for ongoing medical treatment. And what that care provision consists of is critical care so the CCAS teams that provide um, critical care in the air so that's for patients that are intubated um, and requiring life saving intervention uh, to bring them back to the UK for ongoing care we have the infection prevention control team um, it's the uh, UK's only uh, infectious diseases uh, control team um, and they uh, deal with all manner of things uh, regarding um, infectious diseases, so the Ebola outbreak, for example, um, and how it was televised uh, that uh, the, the transfer of that patient uh, from the airhead up to uh, the Royal Free Hospital um, took place. So they have a difficult job. It's not a job that I particularly fancy um, interacting with infectious diseases in such a way, but they, that is our capability, and that's located at Prize. Um, in addition to that, we have the general aeromed as well. So uh, repatriation of aeromedical patients 
um, that both present with physical and psychological um, disorders um, and requiring intervention back in the UK. So that gives you an overview of Tactical Medical Wing and what our overall uh, capability is about. But um, from a mental health point of view, we're a really small card. We're 25 aeromedical flight nurses um, within the RAF, and we provide um, a capability to um, the whole of the military um, and in addition to other agencies as well, which I'll talk about a, a little bit down the way. But the way that that's structured is that we have four mental health nurses that are permanently located at Tactical Medical Wing. Um, and, the, and that is under the umbrella of uh, SO2 Aeromed, which is an aviation doctor. Um, so he uh, or she uh, will provide the authority to implant a patient once the necessary assessments of that clinical condition has been undertaken. That assessment of the clinical condition is undertaken by the senior nurse on the squadrons, uh, so that will be the psychiatric aeromed liaison officer. And fundamentally, it's the role of the PALO. We'll, we'll, we like acronyms in the military, so I try and keep it as easygoing as possible. But um, the role of the PALO is to fundamentally uh, assess a patient. Um, so, for example, if a, if a service, if a uh, patient is requiring aeromedical evacuation, you could yes. Explain what each what that acronym means individually for each letter. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing that now. Yeah. So. So, Psychiatric Aeromed Liaison Officer. Okay, sorry, I spoke a bit fast there. Um, yeah, we have a habit of doing that. Apologies. So, the, the role of the PALO, um, so therefore it is the role to assess um, all patients and fundamentally coordinate the delivery of repatriating a patient back to the UK. Um, the three remaining nurses that are on the squadron, uh, Flight Nurse Mental Health, FNMH, um, it is their role to undertake aeromedical evacuation. But it's a, it's, it's a service that's in demand. It's a service that has logistical challenges. It's a service that has a huge geographical footprint. So um, not just three nurses can deliver that capability. So we have the remaining uh, nurses within our mental health cadre. Um, who are located within Defence Primary Healthcare, um, working alongside myself and Wing Commander Ashton um, in uh, our departments. Uh, they will be um, called upon to support and augment a flight, uh, flight team uh, to go and repatriate a patient. But fundamentally, all nurses within the RAF um, have the same competencies, the same level of training, and can deliver um, a, you know, a golden standard of service uh, to us. Okay, so um, before we, un before we uh, learn about how we do it, we've got to understand um, who we're providing the service to. So it works on a three-tier system, okay, and um, so in the tier one bracket, this is our primary um, business. So this is where we deliver to our UK armed forces, so that's Royal Navy and Marines, um, the, Royal, uh, the Royal Air Force, um, the Army and Special Forces in addition to the reserve elements as well, which we are increasingly utilising um, as part of our defence capability. Um, they are our entitled patients um, and uh, they will receive um, our full complement of care. Similarly is the case with the Tier, tier 2 um, uh, group. 
so these are government agencies um, where, we ha where the military has a, a memorandum of understanding with the government. Uh, so if I give you an example of a government agency uh, such as cable and wireless that provide um, communication support uh, in the Ascension Islands, for example. Um, so they're the kind of agencies that we can uh, deliver um, uh, a service to. In addition to that, we also um, support uh, our uh, allied forces as well. Um, we are a unique service um, in that, uh, from a mental health perspective, um, we're the only country to be able to deliver a specialist mental health service where we are utilising trained mental health nurses and psychiatrists um, and, and aviation qualified doctors to deliver um, care in the air for our mental health patients. So, for example, if we look over the, the Atlantic to um, the United States, for example, they would generally use general teams sedating the patient and moving them that way. So it's a lot more invasive and not so um, supportive of the individual. Not a criticism, but just an observation, no, nonetheless. Okay, and then finally in the tier three is um, non-entitled um, but paying customers. So um, requests that come from insurance companies um, and other other bits and pieces that might come through. They're few and far between. But uh, the difference between ourselves in the military, in defence, um, in comparison to civilian companies that provide air and medical evacuation is that defence has a full um, operational capability. So we can literally go anywhere in the world at any time. Um, so that's when we might be utilised for the Tier 3 kind of individuals. Everyone okay? Yeah. Cool. Okay. All right. So... Um, this slide's a bit busy, um, but I'm just going to simplify this. So in, in mental health, we have, um, we have class one patients. These are our patients. And they're broke down into Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie. So our Alpha patients are our patients that are the poorliest, uh, that are most in need, um, and um, often present with most risk. So imagine that a patient uh, that uh, is... Uh, presenting with symptoms of psychosis or very severe and unstable depression with suicidal tendency, where they are um, unable to be treated in their current location. Um, they're likely to decompensate in, um, in, in, whilst remaining in that uh, environment or uh, in flight, and they, they might pose a risk to either themselves, them, others, or the aircraft. So these are our one alpha patients, okay, and um, for those patients we only use military aircraft, uh, you'll be pleased to know for those that we fly <laughs> civilian aircraft, um, we use military aircraft because we require a stretcher fit, okay, we require a stretcher so that um, if a patient requires sedation, uh, we need to be able to have uh, a capability where we can maintain airway. So in those cases we would usually use four mental health nurses, um, and a general duties doctor or anaesthetist that can offer that air airway capability. Okay? They, they're few and far between, um, but they, they do happen. Okay? Uh, then we have the Bravo patients. Uh, so the Bravo patients are those that um, are a little bit more stable in presentation, so still quite severe in presentation, but stable. So depression, anxiety, um, other affective mood disorders, um, who you know, uh, require intervention back in the UK are less likely to decompensate in, in flights but still pose a risk. So therefore, again, we will use um, a complement of air, uh, mental health nurses to uh, repatriate that patient back to the UK. Not necessarily with a doctor on this occasion because there's less of a requirement to sedate 
uh, but it is case-by-case basis. And then the Charlie patients, they're our worried well. Um, this is where we get the brunt of our business, if we're honest. This, these are individuals that um, are deployed on operations that uh, become depressed, anxious, low in mood, um, have difficult um, psychosocial di- um, problems um, that perhaps are presenting with uh, fleeting thoughts of self-harm, suicide, um, or risk to others. Um, so the risk is generally low, um, and we can... Um, perhaps give uh, uh, wider consideration to using not just mental health nurses, but maybe um, general uh, nurses um, in support of that team to bring them back. But they require low intervention in flight, if any, um, and it is principally just to get them safely from one location to another. Okay. We have the priorities, P1, P2, P3. Priority one is our urgent cases, so within 24 hours. So the idea is that from, uh, from bang to, to buck, um, you know, we've got 24 hours to move with that patient. Now, that doesn't necessarily correlate with um, an individual that is a one-alpha patient. It might be that we have a, 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 you know, a, a one Charlie patient that's in a location um, where in which they can't carry arms anymore but they might be in a very kinetic forward role. So therefore, we might have to give them a priority one um, classification or category um, because actually we need to return them back to the UK so that they don't um, fall under um, harm of themselves or others by not being able to perform their primary operational jobs. Hi. Yeah, so we've, we've, we've kind of gone into a contingency ops cycle now. So as Adam will have alluded to earlier, you know, when um, Her- so Afghanistan and Iraq and um, Libya and all those places were very busy, then yes, we did have a forward mental health team. Um, I deployed as part of that um, team um, back in the day. Um, and the idea is that you go out to forward operating bases and deliver fundamentally the service of a DCMH, a mental health team, um, but uh, yes, we do. So in, in this time, uh, what we uh, have is this um, uh, sort of uh, reach back um, ability where in which we can send people from the UK to specifically bring back that uh, individual. Um, but, um, you know, it's constant ebb and flow. But at the moment, we're in a period of, of pretty um, settled states, which is great. Great. Um, so, <laughs> but um, OK. So um, the priority two is within 48 hours um, and priority three is, in, is within seven days. So those patients, you know, they're usually worried well in, a, in an environment such as Cyprus, for example, uh, where they've got a good care team out there um, that can stabilise the patient, but they simply need to be repatriated. We can do that within a seven-day time frame, so we don't necessarily have to hurry with that. Okay. If we do use um, civilian aircraft, uh, we do engage with the uh, the, the, the company. Um, we submit uh, medical declaration um, and information um, to then get approval from the airline to be able to employ that patient. Uh, so it is a considered process, and we don't simply use an airline uh, without notifying um, them appropriately. Okay. Just in case there's any concerns about that. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. So they're escorted. Um, Sometimes they'll go back um, unescorted. So you'll notice in the slide uh, later on is that we have a lot of patients that don't require 
escort. And that's usually because there, we have a system within the military where we, are, we like to employ safety. Um, we're a very safety-minded organisation. And so we will, um, if a patient, for example, is out in Canada at, at, uh, at Batis there, um, and they need to return back for a medical appointment... Uh, but they have a history of mental health, but it's not necessarily their primary issue at this particular time, is that they will, be, they will receive a, um, a Charlie classification. Um, the, the PALO, the Psychiatric Aeromedical Liaison Officer, will have reviewed the care, um, but, um, but yeah, there's no requirement to move them um, from an escorted point of view. So they're well, they're not going to decompensate in flight and they don't have any risk. Uh, but there is a robust system for being able to assess whether somebody requires assistance or not. So again, we're not just throwing people on planes um, that might cause risk. Hello. I'll ask a technical question, which is a worst-case scenario. Okay. It so happens I work at the Wall 3 in the infectious diseases department, so you transfer to us the viral hemorrhagic patients. So occasionally some of these patients have to be sedated for a variety of reasons. Can I understand that this, that altitude in a, potentially in a tent Mm -hmm. And sedation is needed, and you've got hypoxia because of altitude and so on. I mean, that is the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. how, is, how is sedation administered? Or are there any risks? Well, I think um, that's beyond my speciality. From a mental health perspective, we follow the rapid tranquilisation policy, okay. so that is not IM first instance. It's, um, PR, it's diazepam um, or lorazepam um, with velotalazepine. Uh, um, um, but, um, but I suspect if there is a, a complication over um, altitude, um, then you would fly at sea level. Um, so pressure regulation. So um, my very um, limited knowledge is, you know, um, cabin altitude, you know, of pr approximate six to 8,000 feet. Uh, but if you have patients with head injuries um, or post-surgery uh, within a time frame, uh, where there may potentially be pockets of air, then we tend to have a cabin restriction to sea level, and we will use uh, military aircraft for that. So like with the infectious, uh, with the uh, ATI, the infectious um, uh, prevention team, um, we use military aircraft because that's the only aircraft that we can get the, 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 the ATI onto. Yeah. Does that answer? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah? Okay. Okay. Perfect. Thanks, Chris. Okay, so just to, um, I know we're conscious of time, so um, just to give you an overview of, um, of bringing this to life a little bit. So we have a patient that becomes well, unwell in theatre um, and requires um, aeromedical evacuation. A patient movement request um, is sent to tactical medical wing and then subsequently pass over to the payload for review. What the payload will do with that clinical information is review it first, or first and foremost. Uh, they will look on the um, medical system uh, to look at their history just to make sure that we've captured all the information. We will also speak with the referring clinical team to ensure that we have a, a comprehensive um, and correct understanding of what the patient's presenting with. Once we're able to um, understand what the patient's needs are, then we can uh, then offer a classification and a priority, and that subsequently then leads into the coordination piece. So that's um, uh, generating an AeroMed team. Uh, so um, what will you require as part of that team in order to deliver the care to the patient? We'll give consideration to the aircraft, so that's whether that's using the A330 uh, 
A330, A330, the Voyager, um, you know, that's uh, in service within the RAF, or um, using a Herc, an A400M, or a C1, uh, a C17, or if we need to use um, civilian aircraft um, to get to where we need to get to. So those considerations will go on. And then the disposal as well. So the pathway. So for the one Alpha and the one Charlie, uh, one Bravo patients, um, given, my, given in mind that we are a safety-minded um, organisation, uh, we will ensure that those patients are directly admitted into hospital back into the UK. They usually go as voluntary patients. Very infrequently will they be um, uh, voluntold to go into hospital under a section or otherwise. Um, but uh, the idea is that if patient is presenting with um, significant uh, mental health, it, mental ill health, um, then the us usually it's appropriate to send them to an inpatient service provision um, for comprehensive assessment. And there, from there, in a place of safety, they can be managed back into the community environment, to the home environment, and back into a working environment. Um, and for the one Charlie patients, so the low-level patients, ten they tend to be discharged back into the care of the GP um, back at the barracks. Um, so again, you know, comms is very important, uh, and a management plan will be uh, put in place so that the patient knows exactly what's going to be happening when to make sure that they're seen within 24 hours of arrival back into the UK, uh, that they're followed up by the mental health team within seven working within seven days, five working days, um, so that we make sure that they've got the provision of care and support that they need at that time. Okay. So I know we're pretty um, tight on time and I don't want to eat into your evening too much. Uh, but uh, just to give a brief overview of stats. Um, so these are stats from 2018. Um, and uh, in gen it, on the whole, um, we had um, 2,000 aeromedical evacuation requests submitted to the Tactical Medical Wing in 2018. Um, and... Um, of those, um, there was a percentage that was uh, was escorted moves um, and a larger percentage that were unescorted moves. For us in mental health, the number of 37 doesn't seem all that significant, but bear in mind that we have you know, significant logistical challenges, that the care teams are usually extensive in, in the numbers that we are sending out to those patients. Um, and the idea is that you pre-position a, a care team they will assess the patient in theatre they will make sure with the payload that the plan is appropriate and then um, a fit to fly uh, will be conducted um, and uh, an authority will be given to implain the patient so it is a bit of a process um, but uh, 37 was our number for last year and you can see 114 um, unescorted uh, moves um, in comparison to 2017 stats and 2016 stats that have been released by DASA, um, we've seen a slight increase um, this past year in terms of unescorted moves. Um, but escorted moves-wise, um, in the Herrick and Telic days, so the deployment uh, where we were sort of forward in our combat, it was about 50 a year. Uh, we've dropped down a little bit now because we're on contingency ops and doing low-level uh, stuff um, across, the, uh, across the globe. So that gives you a bit of an understanding of, of how busy or not busy we are. We think we're busy because of the challenges that we face, but, um, but yeah, 37 is our number. Okay. So I did have a case study to present to you, but I know that we're short for time. Would you like to hear the case study in brief? or 
Yeah, okay, just to bring it to life a little bit more. Yeah. Okay, of course. Yeah, no worries. Well, yeah, I would dis- I'd disagree with that slightly because um, we have a, an awful lot of high-risk occupational groups across defence. Yeah. Um, so whether that would be the infantry, um, special forces, uh, you know, through to firefighters that are on the front line, to it, the list goes on this, but there's an, there's an awful lot of high-risk groups, not just air crew. So uh, in terms of uh, preventative work, so that's um, proactive engagement um, as an organisation. Uh, if I can talk on behalf of the RAF, but it will be similarly shared across um, defence, is that we do have um, organisations within the RAF that specific roles are to um, work with stigma, um, to spend a lot of time on uh, stress management and resilience, um, we have um, so we have a, a team at Holton that delivers um, stress management and resilience training across the Air Force um, to its uh, population to give them better skills um, uh, to be able to utilise as and when they might require it. Um, we have a number of apps that we um, tend to plug. Um, we also have line management um, uh, interactions uh, known as trauma risk management. Um, so TRIM is something that is utilised by line managers to be able to, uh, uh, to spot individuals that are um, suffering following a critical incident. But there's a, a number of layers, there's a number of initiatives that are ongoing in, in, in the Air Force that try and work with the preventative work. Um, but uh, of course, you know, you, air crew is unique that's fair, um, and um, you know they have uh, special requirements, and uh, and and I guess that that is being catered for. And sorry, my other quick question yeah. is: Can veterans access any of that? So veterans. So if um, you've left, if you've ex-air crew, ex-special forces, ex-para, whatever, you've left a year ago, can you say, look, I'm, you know, having an issue? Can I access that training? But I'm not severe enough that I want to go through it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it would be, it'd be through the veterans um, program, um, but in terms of the pre-medicine preventative care, then no, um, because that is for service personnel. Um, but as I say, that we, as we move into the digital age, we have the Defence Mental Health app um, that's uh, very good at providing information on our toolkit. Um, you know what skills um, we can work on, what resources we can utilise in order to better ourselves or look after ourselves or care for ourselves within the interim. Um, so to answer your question, no. Um, but um, but there, yeah. But I guess um, there are other services that can be signposted from by going through the Veterans Mental Health Programme. Okay, thank you. Um, happy for me to carry on quick five minutes if that's okay all right so we have a case study um you know for confidentiality reasons to ensure complete anonymity um if i said that word right at seven o'clock in the evening um 
is, is made up. The case study is made up, uh, but it gives you a general flavour of what kind of presentation we have to deal with um, on a on a day-to-day basis. Okay, so uh, we have a, an individual that's deployed into an operational environment. Um, that individual uh, returned from um, their um, mid-tour break four days prior um, and started to present uh, with uh, peculiar behaviour. Um, the chain of command were concerned about the individual um, uh, and belay- believed that he was under the illicit, uh, the influence of illicit um, drugs, um, illicit substances. So therefore, the uh, senior medical officer contacted the mental health team that were, were in that location at that time uh, to be able to um, ask for, for an urgent mental health assessment. So they were in a forward environment, um, so therefore they were in a small camp uh, with limited provisions of care. So overnight they uh, provided chain of command buddy-buddy care for that individual um, under the direct uh, uh, order of uh, the, the, uh, the guard commander. Uh, but over the night, um, the patient became increasingly agitated, um, increasingly disorientated, um, and had uh, an increasing urge to want to escape the camp and tried to abscond on one occasion. Um, absconding uh, the camp was uh, significant because uh, they were in an area where in which uh, they were directly engaging with the enemy. Um, so that posed a very real challenge for the, for the team um, that was in that forward operating base. Okay, so um, increasingly worried, so um, they, they were referred for mental health assessment. The patient was seen that morning, um, and uh, the assessment um, queried whether the patient was starting to present with symptoms of a psychotic episode. Um, Diagnosis at that time wasn't particularly um, important to nail down, but the symptoms that the individual was presenting with were of significance. Um, And as I said, the agitation was of concern, the disorientation was of concern, and um, the individual's uh, inability to make rational, um, objective decisions um, diminishing was also a concern. So therefore, um, there was a, a requirement for an aeromedic evacuation to happen. Um, the patient movement request was sent through to the uh, through to tactical medical wing. The payload looked at the information and determined that uh, the patient was in need of um, aeromedical evacuation within 24 hours and would be a, a one alpha patient. So there are some key uh, quirks to our um, to, to flying, isn't there? In the fact that it's a tin can in the air. Um, and you know uh, that's how I look at it anyway. It's, it still um, throws me a little bit, but I don't mind flying, so I'm okay. But um, the fact that you're putting a patient that is that presentation into an, a small aircraft, you know, of course it's concerning, isn't it? You know, it's concerning because you've got an aircraft safety um, to consider. Um, it was a military aircraft. Um, it was just aircrew um, and the aeromedical evacuation team that was on board. But nonetheless, um, you know, it's important to keep the safety of that aircraft um, paramount in our thoughts. So in order to uh, manage that uncertainty, yes, medication was administered. Um, but we also have um, a control and restraint um, provision of care. 
um, and it's, uh, it's pr provided by the Royal Military Police, the RAF Police in particular, and we have a unit at Bryce Norton that uh, specifically provides that provision of care. The idea is that they are trained in um, de-escalation, they are trained in control and restraint, and it's six of them on an aircraft, um, it is their primary role to um, uh, restrain the patient if there's any concern about safety emerging but what that does is that allows the uh, the RAF police to be able to deal with the patient physically but it allows us as, as clinical staff to be able to maintain a therapeutic alliance with the patient because we're not the one that's physically offering the restraint so that allows us to give the care, uh, the care um, um, as and when it's required um, so we will tend to have that provision on board um, uh, usually the patient doesn't know about it unless you're in an aircraft that's just you, aircrew, and uh, six uh, plainclothes uh, police officers uh, that are kind of just uh, wandering at the back of the aircraft. Um, so the, with that, you know, the patient was repatriated back to the UK and was directly admitted to hospital. Um, but there is an awful lot of effort that goes in to try and maintain the safety of the aircraft as well as the patient. Uh, both are equal and we do have measures in place to be able to ensure that that does happen. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.